This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right, welcome back. Mike Smith in for Simi. Our hot question of the day is on the turmoil at Surrey City Council. Another of Mayor Doug McCallum's councillors is out of there. Another one bites the dust. This time it's Jack Hundile, not happy with the mayor. He's not happy with community input on policing. He says that's it. He's done. He is out of there. He is sitting as an independent. Now, Doug McCallum and his Safe Surrey Coalition, they've still got a majority down there at Surrey City Hall, but just barely. Like he, They've got five votes there now and a nine-member council, so it's like five to four there now, so he's just hanging on. If he loses another one, then McCallum's, I think, in some real trouble. So here's your question today. Uh, do you support Jack Hundile's departure and uh, all these other counselors bailing out of McCallum? Would you say, yes, this is the right thing to do. McCallum's out of control. These counselors are doing the right thing by quitting. Or would you say, no, the, this council needs unity. They should be loyal to the mayor. At CKNW on Twitter is where you'll find that hot question today. At CKNW on Twitter. You can also call the CKNW buzz line on that t- that one today. Leave me a voicemail there. Uh, 604-331-BUZZ is the number. 604-331-2899. In the mayor's transition report, it states that it'll cost more financially for the taxpayers of Surrey, mm-hmm. but we're actually going to be getting less police officers on the ground. There's, you know, there's there's a deficit of almost, you know, 40 to 50 police officers when you look at it from what we have today to what's being proposed by the mayor. So I, I can never support that. This is Mike Smith filling in for Simi Sarah today. Well, we've got another Surrey City Councilor is bailed out of Mayor Doug McCallum's Safe Surrey Coalition, Jack Hundile, announcing this morning that he will sit as an independent. He's the third Surrey City Councillor uh, to quit the mayor's uh, party down at Surrey City Hall. Let's check in with another councillor on, on Surrey City Council, Doug Alford. Uh, councillor, thank you for coming on. Good morning, Mike. Thanks a lot. Uh, councillor, you uh, ran with Doug McCallum on the Safe Surrey Coalition. What is your response to your colleague, Jack Hundile, announcing that he's quitting today? Well, to be honest with you, it really isn't a big surprise. Um, I was sort of anticipating this would happen. Um, and so at this point in time, kind of expected. Did you talk to him about it at all? Uh, we haven't had much uh, discussion in the last little while on, on this issue at all. No. Councillor, you ran with uh, Mayor Doug McCallum as part of the Safe Surrey Coalition. Uh, you know, you've seen three of your colleagues uh, leave leave your party now. Are are you remaining loyal to the mayor, and you're going to stay with the Safe Surrey Coalition, or are you thinking of quitting too? I'm 100 uh, percent committed to the mayor uh, because I b- believe in the the three main issues that he had asked me to uh, to join him with during the campaign, and 
particularly with the police transition. I, I have supported that since day one. I've been on it open uh, even before I ran for council. And in order to move these ahead, we need a, a united council with consensus so that the other governments can understand that we're strong and we're moving ahead on our, on our issues. Okay, it doesn't, it doesn't seem very united right now when you've got three of your councillors have, have quit your own party there. What, what do you say to your, your, fellow, your colleagues there on council who have resigned from your party? Well, it's disappointing to me because they're all good people and talented people that, particularly with the transition, could provide us some very good input for the people of Surrey. I don't think that the, the defections are in the best interest of the city of Surrey or the people of Surrey myself. That's my opinion. How is it not in the best interest? I think they could, uh, they have a lot of qualities they could bring to council and contribute to the growth of Surrey, the future of Surrey. Okay, well, they can still do that as independents, though, can't they? Yes, but now they're going to have to have get, get consensus, which is, you know, that's politics, right? You're going to have to have to get consensus to move forward with things, right? I mean... I worked in bureaucracy for four, over 40 years, and I understand that there's a, there's a process, a way of getting things done, and, and you have to have that consensus to accomplish anything. Otherwise, as in the past as a community advocate, I could stand my soapbox and yell, that doesn't accomplish anything. Talking to Surrey City Councillor Doug Elford. Doug, is, is Mayor McCallum losing control of this council? I mean, you guys got elected there with a, a big majority the Safe Surrey Coalition won every seat on that council except for one. Now you've got three of your Safe Surrey colleagues have stepped aside to sit as independents. It's cut that majority down to just, by my math, you just got a one-seat majority down there at City Hall now. Is, is McCallum in danger of losing control of this council? No, not, not, not one bit, not at this time. We're strong, we're firm. And we've got to stick together for consensus to move ahead. We've got bold things we've got to do. We've got to move ahead. And people have to understand that we're strong and we're carrying on. Okay, what do you say to the criticism from these, uh, these councillors who have stepped aside about the policing transition plan? There's been a lot of criticism about the public consultation part of it, that the report that went to the provincial government, they say, was inadequate, that they don't like Jack Hundile, your colleague said this morning, he doesn't like this policing plan because it's going to deliver fewer cops for more money to the people of Surrey. He's not on board with that. What do you say to all that criticism? Well, I read it completely differently than that criticism, Mike. Um, the report shows that we're going to have more uh, p- uh, presence in the street, more presence in the school. I like the fact that we can, I'm excited about the fact that we can build a police force from the ground up. I mean, there's, you know, who has an opportunity to do that anywhere in Canada or who has had the opportunity? So for me, I'm looking forward to, to building it from the ground up and modeling it so that it is uh, in the best of the citizens of Surrey. And I'm just um, I'm hopeful that the provincial government makes their decision soon, very soon. Do you have any concerns on that score that the provincial government's taken, obviously taken their time, in, in approving this project, you know, you're not going to get a local police force unless the, the provincial government approves the plan. They seem to be taking a very long time here to review this. Now you've got all these councillors bailing out on the mayor and criticizing the plan. Do you think that jeopardizes the plan going forward? Not, no, not one bit. I mean, uh, we've, got some, we've got some very good people that have uh, are behind the report, highly respected, highly regarded, 
Uh, and so I have a lot of respect for the people that are behind the transition and the plans. And so yeah. as far as I'm concerned, it's really up to the Solicitor General to make that decision. Now, you know as well as I do, they don't move fast on many issues. So um, we're open anticipating that the decision is made soon so that we can push ahead and get going with our own police force. But do you, do you have concerns, though, when you've got your fellow councillors who and just recently were members of your own political party there at City Hall, now sitting as independents. You, you know, you got guys like Stephen Pettigrew saying that this report that's gone to the provincial government's full of holes and he wants he wants the provincial government to, to not approve it and order more consultations. I mean, doesn't that put the provincial government in a tough spot when you've got one councillor after another quitting on the mayor and his party and criticizing this plan? I mean... You know, that makes I, th- I think that puts the, the provincial government in a very difficult position to approve this, don't you think? Well, again, I put my, uh, my weight behind the people that are behind the report. I have a lot of respect for the people that uh, wrote the report and submitted the report, that collaborated on the report. And to me, that yeah. holds uh, their, their uh, opinions, are, I hold higher regards than uh, a counselor that uh, may not have necessarily the same level of expertise. What do you think of the per- performance of the mayor? I, I know you said that you're you're remaining solid with the mayor's plan and you're remaining with the Safe Surrey Coalition. What do you think about the the individual performance of Mayor Doug McCallum here? It seems like he's he's crossed swords with some of these councillors and taken a few personal cracks at them, and there seem to be some some hurt feelings here among some of these councillors that have left your party over the mayor's uh, comments and and behavior. What are your What are your thoughts on McCallum's performance so far? I think he's doing a good job. We have, um, like I said, some very bold things that we all council have supported at the beginning of, of uh, our term that have to get accomplished. And you have to be hard. You have to be strong to get things done. And that's one thing I do admire about the mayor is he, he doesn't, he, doesn't uh, he, he pushes forward and he, he gets things done. And that may rankle a few people uh, along the way. I'm sure it has. But it's effective and it's needed for the city of Surrey right now. We're, we're going to be the second, probably the largest city in the region. And, and we need to stand up for what's best for the people of Surrey. And that's what he's doing. And I respect him for that. Councillor, last question. On the, the policing plan, you've been encouraging the provincial government to get on with it here and approve this plan. Is there any danger in, in, if, the, if this plan approval is delayed through the fall uh, that you guys start missing your timetables to, to get this uh, local police force up and running? Well, there is, there is that concern, right? Uh, I mean, we have a timetable that we, we, and it's ambitious, and we have to, we have to um, accomplish this. If, if uh, the province uh, delays us any longer, they also understand there, there's issues that, uh, that we, we're going to have to face as we move ahead. But certainly that is a concern of ours. And, and certainly I, we don't want to be doing many more interviews about the subject. I want to be interviewing about the transition and moving ahead and, and, and uh, getting contribution to how we can build a really good force for the city of Surrey. Councillor, thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Mike. All right, that's Surrey City Councillor Doug Elford. He is remaining with the Safe Surrey Coalition. You heard him there. He's supporting the mayor. It was two years ago today, July 18th, 2017, that we heard from this man. 
I can't wait to get started. I know British Columbia can't wait to get started. We have the team, we have the plan, we're committed to getting it done. You can count on that. Each and every day, we're going to work as hard as we can to realize that great potential. We're ready to get started. Let's go. Thank you very much. All right, of course, that is Premier John Horgan sworn in two years ago today. Yes, that's right. The NDP government here in British Columbia has been in power for two years. So happy anniversary to John Horgan. Uh, let's talk about this now with our BC Politics panel. We got Shannon Waters. She is the chief reporter for British Columbia Today, national content manager for Queen's Park Today. Is that right? Okay. Shannon, thanks for coming in. Yeah, great to be here, Mike. Thank you for being here. Also, we got McLean Kay, the editor-in-chief of or the Orca BC. McLean, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me on. Okay, guys, Shannon, let me start with you. Two years ago today, Horgan is sworn in. I got to think that Horgan must be pretty pleased with the way this is going. What are your thoughts? I do. I do think that uh, the premier seems to be enjoying himself leading the province. And it also seems like members of the opposition think that the premier is having a great time leading the province. One of them told me that they see Horgan as being full of glee um, at still being the premier. And one of the things... A liberal told you that. Yes. Did he say that with a hint of bitterness in his voice when he said that? I would say more rueful. Okay. A little bit rueful. Um, but so I started covering politics like focusing on politics as a reporter in the fall of 2017. And basically as soon as I walked in the building, everybody was like in six months, we're going to be back at the polls. Yeah. This green NDP Alliance is going to fall apart. Right. That didn't happen. And then they said, well, maybe at the year mark, you know, things won't have been going all that smoothly. They've disagreed and that hasn't happened either. Yeah. So I have to think that those who are in government and their allies, the greens are pretty pleased to still be here two years in. Okay. McLean, your thoughts. Well, I'd actually agree that uh, in many ways their their greatest accomplishment is that they're still here. The popular wisdom was that we'd go through an alert early in election. Um, and yes, uh, they're still riding high in the polls, but there are some pitfalls along the way and some things that may prove to be an issue in two years' time. Things like the community uh, benefit agreements, uh, the caribou plan, uh, the fact that they've sort of reversed themselves on Massey Tunnel. So there are some sort of uh, brush fires that they're going to need to stamp out. Okay, don't you think like Horgan... I mean, Shannon, if you go back two years ago, like you said, when people were predicting, oh, this thing could all unravel very quickly, like the, the typical shelf life for a minority government in Canada, I think on average is about 18 months, I recall. So here we are two years later. So he's already beaten those odds, I guess, and doesn't appear to be in any danger of falling anytime soon. Although this is still a slim majority they got here with their deal with the Green Party, but appears to be just steady as she goes. Yes, they seem to be on pretty solid footing ending the session. Um, there was no. some drama there again from the opposition. And I think one of the wild cards in sort of how things are going to go with the government is this legislature scandal that broke last November and continues to sort of pop up at times. Um, that could be something that throws a wrench in the works at some point, I guess. But we don't have like major points of disagreement between the NDP and the Greens have been the Site C Dam and LNG. Now, LNG is still kind of an issue. We haven't seen um, the dream of liquid natural gas fully realized in BC. And the Greens maintain they are dead set against it and will continue to try and oppose it as best they can. But at the same time, the ball is rolling there. And I don't see any other issues that are quite as contentious on the horizon going forward. McLean, what are your thoughts on Horgan's performance as Premier? I, I, I personally think the guy's kind of overachieved. He's done better than I think a lot of people thought he might do. 
Uh, what are your thoughts on how he's done in the first two years here? I think overachieved is probably a good uh, description. This is somebody, let's remember, who didn't even want the job of being the NDP leader. Yeah. Uh, he kind of felt he, he his hand was forced, and uh, I think they thought that they weren't going to win that election in 2017 until during the campaign. Uh, I think he, uh, Shannon used the phrase gleeful, I think that's accurate. I think he yeah. has said himself on a number of times that the best day in government, or the worst day in government, is better than the best day in opposition. I think he's right about that. How about the how are the liberals doing two years later? I think they are uh, they they took some time to, to sort of find their feet in opposition, and I think they're they're feeling it now. They have found some issues that are causing problems for the NDP, and they are not letting up on them. Um, like the, what? the Massey Tunnel is probably yeah. the best single example. This has been an issue that isn't going away, and um, the problem for the NDP is this is not something they can say you had sixteen years. This is a plan that they canceled and uh, don't seem to have a realistic um, alternative. Okay. Shannon, your thoughts on that? On the George Massey Tunnel, yeah, I think that one's been a mess. I think there's a lot of people who are. Really or how about frustrated. how about Horgan? Like, what do you think of Horgan's performance? Well, I like to call him Premier Dad, and I know yeah. I'm not the <laughs> only one because the man sure loves his dad jokes. Yeah. <laughs> um, he does seem to enjoy what he's doing. Um, I have been at the press conferences where, like McLean said, he's talking about the best days in government, and he's also talked fairly candidly about how he felt as the opposition leader and how different he feels as the premier getting to be productive rather than reactive and critical, getting to introduce policies that have an impact on people's lives. Now, on the flip side, I talked to some of the liberal MLAs who spent time as cabinet ministers and now find themselves as critics in opposition, and some of them are missing that. They yeah. said, you know, it's frustrating to only be in opposition and you can still suggest ways for the government to improve on its policy. You can criticize the ones that you think are, you know, terrible or destructive, but you can't make them change it because you're not in government. Okay, let me ask you about, this is one of the, give me an, I'll give you an example of why I think Horgan's kind of a smart politician. McLean, let's see what you think about this. One of his vulnerabilities has been high gas prices, right? So the liberals, I think, were pretty clever in going after him on that. He kind of tried to flip the script on it and say, oh, it's got nothing to do with well, provincial government taxes on gas. It's these big oil companies are ripping you off. They're gouging you, right? So he called that public inquiry into gas prices that's going on right now in the city of Vancouver. I think the whole, th I think this gas and price inquiry is a joke myself, but I do think in some ways it's kind of clever of him to do it because if he can even plant a seed of doubt or suspicion in the minds of voters that, hey, you know, these gas price, these gas companies are ripping us off. It's not Horgan's fault. Do you think that's smart of him? Or do you think that maybe this gas price inquiry in any way kind of backfires on him? I think it's smart in the very short term. I think uh, once the inquiry comes back, he's he might have a problem on his hands. And I think you wrote about this uh, yesterday, the day before. He has convinced a certain number of British Columbians that they're being gouged at the gas pumps. And there are another probably larger group that don't think that's the case, that it's more of an issue of high demand and, and restricted supply. The one thing everyone can agree on is that they're probably paying about as much as they possibly can for gas. And the only one who could conceivably do something about it, wh no matter what you think the, the issue is, is the premier. So I think he might have a problem in a year or so where he's going to be expected to do something, and I'm using air quotes around something, and um, it's not clear what his realistic options are. Shannon. 
Let's not forget as well that the BCUC, the BC Utilities Commission, who's doing this inquiry, has been barred from looking at what the province's policies might be doing. That's why it's a joke. That's why this thing is a joke, in my opinion. The other issue they're running into, if they were hoping to prove that companies are gouging, and the premier has used that word, gouging. Right. Um, is that these companies are saying, we can't participate in this. It will ruin our competitive edge. It's confidential information that you're asking for. And so at this point, there were technical difficulties on the BCUC feed yesterday, so I wasn't able to tune into the inquiry. But it's unclear at this point how much information they may actually be able to get from these companies to figure out whether or not they are gouging. Okay, let me ask you this real quick, and then we'll take a break, take some phone calls in the open line as well. And that's the other break in sort of political story we're covering here on the show today, and it's Surrey City Councilor Jack Hundal, the latest to bail out on Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum. Now, you guys cover provincial politics, but there's a provin- provincial element to this, McLean, and that is the local police force that McCallum wants. That is now in the hands of this government. Mike Farnworth, the Solicitor General, has got to say yes or no to a local police force. When Farnworth looks and sees this turmoil at Surrey City Council, does that threaten the approval of this local police force, do you think? I'd say so. I think it's fair to say there's no great enthusiasm for this idea in the provincial government. And uh, with the turmoil in Surrey City Hall, it might even be prudent for them to kind of wait it out and see what else happens there. Shannon, what are your thoughts on that? Yes. Uh, so Minister Farnworth has the report that council had put together with the specifics of, you know, how this is going to be realized. And this is something that the province had been waiting for, saying, we're not going to comment on any of this until you give us a plan for how you're going to make this change. Right. And I agree with McLean. I think at this point, the province is probably thinking, we'll just wait and let them sort it out. And or maybe punt it back to them and tell them maybe you guys got to do a do-over here. Yeah, because members right. of the public have been frustrated at yeah. sort of a lack of consultation and having this plan sort of sprung on them. I remember when they did the open house maybe a couple months back now, a lot of people were just like, we want to see the details. So The politics panel, Shannon Waters, McLean Kay are my guests. We're talking about the two-year anniversary of the NDP in power. It was two years ago today that John Horgan was sworn in. As a premier, 604-280-9898 is the number to call. 604-280-9898, star 9898. On your cell, let's go to Amar in Burnaby. Hi, Amar. Hi, how are you doing? I'm good. What do you think? Uh, it's a failing, Mark. We work in real estate. We're not building anymore. The 16 taxes that he brought in has completely crippled the market. The transfer tax, the home tax. The, the problems with uh, the carbon tax, where it went up four cents as first of April, and he's doing this inquiry spending money. We need a new government. At least with the Liberal government, uh, we could live. With this party that's involved right now, it's just killing the economy completely. If we're not building in the next couple of years, there's going to be a shortage of supply of homes. We had three crews. We're down to one crew of building. And it, and it doesn't look get, like getting any better. We need a new government to step in here and be okay. more realistic. Amar, thank you very much for the call. Shannon, your thoughts on that? I do think the affordability issue could end up being an Achilles heel for this government. It's something they ran on. They said they were going to make it more affordable to live in this province, which is a gorgeous place to live. And so a lot of people want to live here, but it is not an affordable place to to make a life. And despite, you know, massive investments in, say, childcare and some in housing, um, they haven't, you know, they've raised taxes and they are spending that money. They 
haven't been able to make it more affordable, really. Yeah, I mean, it, no, it's kind of ironic that they, they sort of ran on an affordability platform, and I thought it they connected really well with voters on that. Could the liberals potentially turn the tables on them in the next election and say you failed to deliver on it and life is still unaffordable, McLean? I think that's exactly what's going to happen in two years. I mean, we were talking off air about uh, the employer's health tax uh, and how that has uh, not only caused cities to raise property taxes, uh, but in, in here in Victoria, they're actually cutting back on services because of it. I know that's not what your co- what our caller was calling about, but I think this is uh, affordability is going to be an Achilles heel for them. Mark in North Van. Hi, Mark. I know that's not what. Yeah. Hi there. Uh, hey. Yeah, go ahead. I love, uh, love your show. Just, uh, I'm, a, I'm a small business owner in North End, and, and uh, just it's, it's, it's impossible to get employees because there's uh, the housing too expensive. Yeah, thanks very much for that. So, they, yeah, again, goes back to the affordability. But what can the government? The government says if the government was here right now, they would say, "What do you, you know? We're spending a fortune on affordable housing, but you know, it's still tough for people." Shannon and it takes time like you're not going to fix a housing supply problem in two years i think you would struggle to fix it in four i think you might struggle to fix it in ten so this is a long-term issue that we're going to be dealing with and one thing that the premier has previously pointed out is that the living wage for vancouver the sort of real amount of money that it takes for a family to be able to survive has actually decreased recently and it's being attributed to investments in childcare, which makes things a lot more affordable affordable for families with kids. The, the housing thing is interesting to me. Like they've done a lot of kind of demand side stuff, McLean, with some of the taxes that you were talking about to try and kind of cool off a, a, like a distorted housing market. But I don't think they've done enough on the supply side to invigorate or to stimulate sort of building of new stuff that people can buy that's affordable. Any thoughts on that? I Well, I agree is the short version. I, I think that the, uh, the biggest solution that's possible here is going to be increasing supply. Um, that plainly isn't happening fast enough. And e- even some of their measures on the demand side, uh, I mean, the speculation tax numbers came out this week. And it's we're not talking about a large number of people or a, a huge amount of revenue here. Okay, let's go back to the phone lines. Tony in Surrey, hi. Hi, thanks for taking my call, Mike. I appreciate you allowing us to give our input. Uh, my, my, my interest in, I think the whole gas situation is that it's a red herring. It's distracting, it's misleading, and, uh, you know, and saying that, what is the answer, really? Like, well, what, what options do we have to, to inquire on the gas pricing? Like, how do, how do you find out these answers? Okay, th- thank you for the call. Well, like you said earlier, McLean, like, I think this gas price inquiry potentially in some ways maybe backfires on Horgan if it increases the expectation that he's actually going to do something about it. He's not going to cut taxes. He's already made that clear. I don't think he wants to do an aggressive market intervention and say we're now going to regulate gas prices and force you to lower your prices. So what's left for him to do? Not much. Kind of run out the clock and hope that nobody notices and, and that another issue comes up because that's exactly right. Um, there's there's not a lot he can do that he seems willing to do um, because I mean, they can quibble about uh, the what the taxes go for. But the fact of the matter is, is a significant amount of what you and I pay at the pumps uh, goes to taxes. Yeah, we just got 30 seconds. Yeah, I think that once this inquiry wraps up and it's on the government to actually take action, they are going to find that they don't like a lot of the avenues that are open to them, and even the ones that are may not have the impact they were hoping for. We need more time, guys. We'll have to have you back in for an hour next time. So that went by really quick. Thanks a lot for coming in. Shannon, thank you. Thanks, Mike. Thank you, McLean. Thanks for having us on. Okay, thank you, guys. That's Shannon Waters, British Columbia Today. 
McLean K, the Orca BC. If you didn't get through on the open line, phone me on the buzz line. Leave me a voicemail there, 604-331-BUZZ, 604-331-2899. Let's check in now with Jeff Semple. He's the former European Bureau Chief for Global News. He's the host of the Russia Rising podcast. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Mike. Great to be with you. And when we're talking about Russia, Jeff, uh, one of the headlines in the news these days is that Face app, uh, app very popular on a lot of smartphones. And I got to admit, I, I got curious. I'm a, I'm a sucker for the hype. So I, I downloaded it last night. This is the app that if you take a photo, it can age you and make you look, make you, you know, it's really fun, makes you look what you, what you're going to look like when you're old. But everybody's freaking out because this is a Russian app. And a lot of people are saying it's a security threat. You should delete it from your phone. Kind of shows the level of, I guess, mistrust that we still have with Russia these days, would you say? Yeah, I mean, I think as soon as you, you say the word Russia in that kind of context, people get nervous, right? And yeah, I know, I know what you mean. I mean, it's like every social media platform that I have on my phone, I turn it on and there are old versions of all of my friends and family. So it's amazing yeah. how quickly this app, which has been around for a while, suddenly took off. But yeah, because it is a, an app based in Russia, suddenly people are concerned that, you know, now their data could end up in the hands of the Kremlin. Um, I do sort of think also, though, Mike, for whatever it's worth, having covered Russia extensively, that this is something that probably a lot of ordinary Russians would be rolling their eyes at right about now. The idea that the sort of, you know, Russian boogeyman who is looking to do everything from interfere in your elections to steal your personal data. I mean, there, you know, there are valid reasons to be concerned, but often that concern is overblown as well. So, you know, I think it's worth sort of maybe just taking a breath and thinking, you know, yes, it's possible that a, a Russian company now has access to some of your photos, but, you know, so does Google, Facebook, Apple, the list goes on and on. So, you you know, it's a valid discussion to have and, you know, particularly pertinent when a country like Russia is involved. Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing that occurred to me is that doesn't pretty much every app or I guess not every app on your phone, but a lot of them are accessing the personal information you got on your phone. So I don't know. People don't seem to be worried about giving up all their personal information to Facebook or Google or whatever. But as soon as you hear that word Russia, uh, then suddenly it's a it's it's a, a national security threat. Yeah, I mean, Mark Zuckerberg knows far more about you than Vladimir Putin does. You can bet that. And, yeah. uh, you know, we've done some stories in the past about micro-targeting that shows that really Facebook has algorithms that use, every, you know, take your photos, things you like. Uh, on Facebook and that, you know, they only need, you know, several dozen likes, for example, uh, according to some research that's been done to be able to make some really educated guesses about you. And in some cases, you know, if you're a common Facebook user, it's possible that Facebook can make better guesses about you than your own family could. So, yeah, this is a valid discussion, and I'm glad at least that the Russia angle has has sort of brought that up, I suppose, uh, and, you know, shone a, a, a new spotlight on that, and obviously it raises new questions every time we talk about Russia because uh, they're so often seen, of course, as an adversary geopolitically. Okay, Jeff, it's Space Week here on the show. We're doing a lot of space content this week because of the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon mission. And in the past... The uh, Apollo 11, I guess, was the great space race between the United States and Russia. But since then, there's been a lot of cooperation with the Russians when it comes to space exploration and things like the International Space Station. Is that sort of kind of outer space detente and cooperation still going on? And, or is it there? Is it a threat that that could unravel in the future, too? Yeah, well, I mean, it is still going on. And you're right. I mean, there's a real juxtaposition here when we look at 
you know, the space industry versus every other industry. I mean, since you'll remember, since Russia annexed Crimea back in 2014, the United States, Canada, our allies have leveled a ton of sanctions at various sectors of Russia's economy. So everything from retail, banking, even fast food chains like McDonald's uh, were forced to close their Russian restaurants that were based in Crimea. But even as we see these these tensions continuing to rise, the space industry stands apart. Uh, not only have we not sanctioned Russia's space industry, but we work side by side and we pay the Russians tens of billions of dollars just to reserve a single seat aboard their Soyuz rocket, which of course is a ticket to the International Space Station where Canadian astronaut David St. Jacques just returned from a couple of weeks ago. And so, you know, this has been the case ever since the U.S. shuttled their space shuttle program, if you pardon the pun, and uh, a few years ago. So what basically for the past several years, in fact, Russia has basically been the only game in town to get up to the International Space Station. And an interesting byproduct of that is that you know, we see space exploration as this rare example of geopolitical cooperation, and, you know, it does continue to this day. Having said that, you know, we are seeing many changes happening now in the space industry with private companies such as SpaceX and Virgin Galactic getting into the game. Uh, you know, these billionaires like Jeff Bezos, uh, you know, talking about potentially opening the door to space tourism, even in the next couple right. of years, where paying customers could get to go up to space. And they're also doing a lot of work for NASA, shuttling supplies up to the space station. So, you know, we've seen this sort of kumbaya geopolitical cooperation moment uh, going on for a while in space. The question, of course, is how long that will last as we see these other private players getting into the game. Yeah, when you got like billionaires like you said, like Elon Musk or or Richard Branson and these guys getting involved in space exploration and partnering with governments, does that maybe kind of cut Russia out of the opportunities for cooperation? I'm thinking about maybe another lunar mission. I mean, you got NASA talking about going back to the moon at some point, and they're looking for international partners on that. Would could Russia be involved in uh, another moon mission? Yeah, in fact, we've already seen them uh, step up and, and and put their name forward as being a country that uh, that would be involved um, in the Lunar Gateway. So we've got you know Canada and Japan as well. Um, so certainly they're you know interested in. I think they've expressed interest, and in, and I think everyone expects that they would be a part of that. Uh, but you know at the same time, how big a part? I mean, you know, Russia's space age uh, space industry has been, as I say, sort of you know the foundation on, upon which the rest of us have been doing our work for the past several years when we talk about space exploration and study and science. But you know that I think may be coming to an end. The central role that they have played, they'll still be playing a role, but we perhaps won't be relying on them in the same way that we have done for the past several years. Um, so of course that you know raises is questions about whether, you know, if we don't need the Russians and we don't need their support to get up into space, then, you know, will we see some of these geopolitical tensions potentially start to affect the space industry as well? Uh, I think, you know, that's a valid question. And, um, you know, how long will the International Space Station continue? How long will we need the Soyuz rocket from the Russians to get us up there? And, you know, if when the day comes that we no longer rely on them solely to do our space exploration, you know, th at what point does the Russian space agency or the Russian space industry, excuse me, you know, become a target of sanctions like we've seen in so many other sectors of the mm. Russian economy? Okay, I highly recommend the Russia Rising podcast. Jeff, where can people find the podcast? 
Yeah, you can find, uh, just search Russia Rising on uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Uh, really encourage you to take a listen. The, uh, the, f- the season one is out now, and we're already talking about uh, potentially producing some more episodes to come. So I hope people will check it out. And if you have... This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Already, then stay tuned for an announcement soon. Okay, it's a great pod. Thanks for coming on, Jeff. Great to talk to you. Thanks, Mike. All right, that's Jeff Semple, host of the Russia Rising podcast. Let's talk about Vancouver's very tough rental market, especially for minimum wage earners. According to a new, a new report from the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives, the minimum wage, if you're a minimum wage earner, you would have to work 112 hours a week just to afford a two-bedroom apartment in the city of Vancouver. Let's talk about this new report now with Mark Lee. He's a senior economist at the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives. Mark, welcome back. Hi, good afternoon. Thanks a lot. Let's talk about your report. What are your major findings there? Well, I mean, in some senses, it's not surprising to anyone listening that housing in Metro Vancouver is unaffordable and that uh, relative to uh, the cost of housing, that uh, wages are, are, are on the low side. Um, you know, we did this study looking nationally, and, and uh, you know, we found that in, you know, this is pretty true across Canada as well, even though Vancouver is the most expensive, um, you know, in almost every census metropolitan area, uh, it's, uh, you know, virtually impossible for a minimum wage worker uh, to work full-time, full year, and be able to afford a decent place to live. Okay, like you said, I guess that's not a surprising finding. I mean, is is there any jurisdiction elsewhere in the world where you could, uh, you know, be a minimum wage earner and be able to afford an apartment? That's a good question. That's not something that we uh, we looked at. I mean, certainly there are other parts of the world where uh, there's a much larger share of like public or social housing stock. So if yeah. you look at places like Vienna, like basically half of the the housing there is some form of public housing. Uh, in Berlin, for example, they're now looking at the public sector buying up private market rental housing in order to to you know maintain uh, some affordable housing. Uh, and you can also look at something like Whistler, you know, which is much more extreme version of that resort type mentality. But in order to have housing for the service workers who live there, uh, the Whistler Housing Authority has had to build a lot of sort of dedicated affordable housing. So I think it does require a public policy interventions of, of various sorts. And we're starting to get a little bit of that over the last few years, but there's still yeah. more that could be done, especially in terms of like building new dedicated affordable rental. What's the, uh, what's the hourly wage, like the minimum hourly wage you would have to earn in order to afford a two-bedroom apartment? In Vancouver. Um, so if you're working, you know, full year, full time, so that's 40 hours a week, 52 uh, weeks a year, uh, you would need to earn $35 an hour uh, in order to afford a two-bedroom uh, and, and just almost $27 an hour to afford a one-bedroom. So that's Metro Vancouver-wide, and obviously there's disparity um, uh, in there. You know, on the high end around you know, downtown, North Falls Creek, uh, you're looking at anywhere from, uh, you know, like, 38 to 60 dollars per hour for uh, uh for places in, in those parts of town okay so the minimum wage in bc right now is what 13 dollars and 85 cents an hour right 
Yes, and the, the so, cal- I should note that the calculations we did were based on the minimum wage in October because that's when the data came out. So there is a little bit of a bump in the minimum wage, but we, you know, we don't have the latest data, but we anticipate that rents have sort of gone up, you know, commensurate. Right. Okay. So if thirteen eight thirteen dollars and eighty five cents is nowhere near what you'd need to earn to afford an apartment, what are you guys suggesting? You got to hike the minimum wage up dramatically. Well, I think that's, you know, there's two things you can do. One is you can uh, increase wages at the bottom of the uh, of the uh, income distribution. So that would be higher minimum wages, uh, you know, more unionization of the service sector. Uh, and Unicos and do take action on the housing side of the market uh, as well in terms of uh, protecting existing rental stock, uh, building uh, new dedicated rental accommodations, uh, things like the regulations on Airbnb or short-term rentals, the, you know, empty homes tax. I think those are all creeping in at trying to push more supply of rental into the marketplace as well. Okay, what, what could be done realistically, though? Because obviously no government is going to hike up the minimum wage to like 35 bucks an hour or something. I mean, this is, this is crazy. I mean, you know, that's just not going to happen. So, like, how do we... I think what you got to do is... I think you got to get more rental accommodation built and put on the market, drive, to put those, drive the rents down. I mean, if you increase supply, the rent's going to go down aren't they? Yes. So we, we need, I, I think there's a lot we can do on the building side. Um, yeah. you know, even though when you look across you know, Metro Vancouver the last few years, we've seen you know, record levels of housing starts. There's you know, cranes. And so we're actually building housing, but too much of that housing is not built for the people who live and work uh, in the city and certainly not at, at low wages. A, l- a lot of these are being advertised as investment properties or much more um, uh, well-heeled uh, clientele. Some of that, if they're purchased, might come into the rental market, but uh, it's, you know, at, at much higher rents than, than we would want. So I think, uh, you know, a generation of building out uh, new dedicated rentals, some of that should come from the, uh, the public sector and leading on that, but also just uh, loosening things up so that we can get more affordable market rental buildings. Yeah, loosen, loosen things up. I like, the, I like the sound of that. Like, you know, <laughs> like it's so difficult in Vancouver to actually get an approval to build anything. I mean, it takes years. I mean, if you, if you take a look at what's going on down in Seattle, right now for example we're in seattle you can get an apartment building project approved in like one year uh no rent controls no excessive taxes no excessive fees on builders and they got like last i looked they had a, a pretty decent vacancy rate there and the, and the rents were going in the right direction they're going down yeah i mean seattle you know? had a, a similar building boom to vancouver uh, but whereas Vancouver mostly built condos, uh, Seattle is mostly built rental. And uh, so they have a much more robust and healthy uh, rental market right now. Right. Uh, here in Vancouver, because uh, the cost of home ownership is so high, a lot of people are getting stuck in rental housing. And they're getting stuck because they, if, they, if they do move, then they're looking at paying much higher rents uh, than what they're currently paying, especially if they've been in a rent-controlled place for, for a number of years. Well, but, uh, On the margin, there's a lot we can do to shift the incentives for developers to build uh, more uh, rental instead of condos. Yeah, like cut their taxes. Well, right? I mean, the GST on, on new housing is something that's, uh, that's come up as something that would help shift the needle to, you know, to make it more, more incentive towards building rental. Yeah, do you support of, that? Uh, building condos. Uh, definitely, yeah. Okay, because I, rem- I remember Justin Trudeau at one point saying, like, hey, maybe we should uh, bring in a GST rebate if you build a rental apartment building. You know, uh, and, and I, he just didn't do it. I mean, it never happened. But, but I think they yeah. should. 
Unfortunately, that's a lot of the Justin Trudeau record is uh, promising things and not delivering on them. Um, you know, certainly there's a lot of there's some new effort at the federal level, this new national housing strategy. But a lot of it is kind of high level rhetoric and the money is sort of way out in the, in, the, in the number of years. But I think the province is starting to come back in the game in terms of, of building more housing. I think the feds could come back in a big way. A lot of this is just getting over the upfront cost of building the units, because once they're built, you have this stream of rental income that lasts for many decades in into the future. So it does actually pay for itself over time, but we got to get over it and actually put some of that money up front. And I think particularly if we see the overall new construction sector starting to, to turn down because of the market dynamics now, let's keep those workers employed, let's keep building housing, but let's build dedicated rental affordable okay, housing okay. that we need. Mark, we got one minute left here. Do you, we got an election coming up in the fall federally. Do you think this should be a, a key issue in a federal election campaign? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we yeah. definitely need a, a, a lot more uh, rental housing, not just in Vancouver, but in Toronto and other markets around uh, the country. Thanks for coming on. Take care. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Mark Lee, Senior Economist, Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Let's go south of the border now to America and see, check on the latest goings on with Trump. There's always something new with the U.S. president. Court records released today show President Trump was aware of efforts to keep porn star Stormy Daniels silent in the days leading up to the 2016 election. Meanwhile, there's the continuing uh, furor over Trump's tweets uh, directed at those four women Congress, uh, those four Congresswomen known as the squad, as uh, Trump continues to defend himself on that. Reggie Cicchini is here, Global News radio reporter, uh, producer in Washington, D.C. Hi, Reggie. Good afternoon. Thanks a lot for doing this. What's the latest with Stormy Daniels? Well, this is all linked to an, uh, an investigation that was taking place in the Southern District of New York, and it all had ties back to uh, what were perceived to be uh, wrong and 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 illegitimate uh, campaign finance donations that were made at the hands of Michael Cohen, which we uh, learned through these documents were at the hands of or at the request of somebody named Individual One, which we later learned to be at the time candidate Donald Trump. Right. What these documents that were released today show is that there were a numerous uh, number of conversations conversations that took place between Donald Trump, between Michael Cohen, between uh, Hope Hicks, who ended up becoming uh, a Trump administration member, and between the lawyers uh, for Stormy Daniels, and between people uh, linked to the National Enquirer. So there were significantly more conversations that were taking place that kind of go against what the president was saying when he said none of this was actually true. Okay, Reggie, there's uh, still continuing controversy around Trump's uh, Twitter storms and his attacks on those four congresswomen known as the squad these young uh, congresswomen that i think trump clearly wants the focus to be on these four particular congresswomen i think he wants the public to believe that the, these are the leaders of the democratic party and he wants as much attention on them as possible and i just i just think he's willing to go in the into the gutter uh, to do it now let's have a listen to a couple of sound clips here this is a rally uh last night where uh, Trump was going after Representative Ilhan Omar, uh, one of the four congresswomen he's been uh, going after. And you hear the crowd's reaction here. Have a listen. Obviously and importantly, Omar has a history of launching vicious anti-Semitic screeds. 
Yeah, you're send her, send her back, send her back, kick her out of the country. It was kind of, uh, kind of an ugly moment. Trump was asked about this today. He says he didn't like hearing that from the crowd. Here's Trump today. I was not happy with it. Uh, I disagree with it. Uh, but again, I didn't say, I didn't say that they did. Reggie, what are we to make of this? How Trump's well, handling I mean- this? I mean, look, the president did say this because he put it out in a tweet, which is now on the record, because we know that the president has said, these are my statements and these tweets stand for themselves. So for the president to say, I never said that, he might have not said it at that moment, but he's already started uh, by fanning those flames earlier this week and then verbalizing that outside of the White House on Monday. But you also have to remember, just because he might not have said that, that crowd went on for 13 seconds while he sat there and nodded with what they were saying, kind of like when uh, when these chants were going on about Hillary Clinton back in 2015, 16 of locker up but he used to sometimes lead those chants the president right now is trying to step back because there's been significantly more blowback towards this than he probably assumed that there would be but you were also right at the beginning of this to say that he's trying to paint these four congresswomen uh, to be the center of the uh, democratic party and kind of sitting towards the top because this is now a new boogeyman for him nancy pelosi yeah. has been doing what she can to kind of bring the party forward and not follow through with impeachment so there's there's a difficult path for him to go after nancy pelosi in the leadership position this now uh, allows for him to kind of bring his followers to the edge and put a little bit of fear in them to say, look at what could be happening to America if these people become uh, full leaders within the party. Okay, this particular congresswoman that he was uh, centered on there, Ilhan Omar, I mean, she's a, an American citizen, but her, she's originally from Somalia, right? She is from a Somalia. She came yeah. here as a child and then was naturalized as a, as a citizen 19 years ago. Right, right. So, you know, these four, the four congresswomen that he's attacking, three of them were born in the United States. Ilhan Omar was is the only one of the four who was born outside of the United States in Somalia and came here as a child, as, as you mentioned. And Trump was the guy who went after these four women and said they should go home, right? They should just leave. They should go back to where they came from. So it's kind of interesting to hear Trump saying there that he, he disagrees with the crowd chanting send her back. But he was the guy who originally tweeted she should go back to where she came from. Absolutely, because right, yeah. we all knew, we all knew that this was pinpointed on one specific congresswoman when he made this tweet back on the weekend, knowing full well that three of them were born uh, in America. So you know the option of sending them back to where they came from with what he called corrupt governments didn't quite make sense. Uh, that said, to say that about a naturalized citizen of the United States is also difficult. But the president has been going after Ilhan Omar since she came into office earlier this year because of comments that she's made about Israel in the past, because yes. of her beliefs when it comes to uh, politics when it's dictated towards the Israeli government. And the president sees uh, anybody who comes after him or anybody who comes after policy that he has in place as an attack on the country and makes them unpatriotic. So this is now an opportunity for him to kind of bait these race wars that are going on across the U.S. by saying, look, here is somebody who is maybe not uh, not originally from the United States, but is now considered to be un-American because she's not following my way. And this is where we're uh, potentially walking into some dangerous territory at the hands of the president. Okay, speaking to Reggie Cicchini from uh, Global News Radio in Washington, D.C. Reggie, I I think it's a deliberate strategy by Trump that I think he wants public attention clearly focused on these four congresswomen. I I don't think he wants the public talking about, I don't know, Joe Biden or anyone else who is running for the Democratic nomination for president. I think he wants in the public's mind that these four women are the face of the Democratic Party and they're kind of leading the Democratic Party. And I I think he's willing to go as deep into the gutter as he's got to go to do it. 
Absolutely. And I think it's not only does he want to kind of distract from what's happening inside the, the Democratic race for that candidate, uh, for that, uh, that leadership position. I think yeah. he also needs to try and turn the page on the fact that there has been little accomplishment in the first three years of him being in office, whether it's with infrastructure or whether it's with immigration or whether it's been health care. So he doesn't really have uh, uh, many kind of promises made, promises kept things to run with right now as he tries well, to doesn't seek he got the election. Doesn't he got the economy going well? Well, of course he has the economy going well, but you also have to remember that this is kind of steamrolled from when Barack Obama was in office. He didn't pick up a failed economy. He picked up an economy that the ball had already been rolling, and he's just kind of been pushing that along. That is one big win for him, but he has yeah. very few wins outside of that. So to go after these congresswomen and show, well, look, the Democrats want to make America a communist country because he uh, he equates democratic socialism with what happens in Cuba and what happens in China. These are ways to kind of scare his base into saying the Republicans are the way to go, but it's also some political gain for him because this is how uh, a good majority of his base who lives in rural America actually feels about what's going on in Washington and what's going on in America right now. So it's a way for him to continuously pull in his group. The problem is, can he expand based on where that group is right now? Yeah, no, I think I think it's a deliberate strategy for sure. Where, where does it leave the other key leaders in the Republican Party on this? I mean, most of them are lining up behind Trump. I guess there's been some exceptions where some Republicans have gone offside and have criticized Trump, but most of them are continue to support the president, right? Absolutely. There have been yeah. some leadership changes uh, in mind over the last 24 hours. Kevin McCarthy in the House has actually now come out to say that what happened last night was inappropriate. The president shouldn't have had these people saying that, which is a little bit of a, of a contrast to how he was acting earlier this week by saying that the president's tweets weren't racist. We're still not hearing much from Senate leadership in Mitch McConnell, but we are still seeing a good number of Republicans line up behind the president. Lindsey Graham today, Senator Lindsey Graham, again, basically saying that what the president was doing is not any kind of, you know, a uh, uh, race rhetoric, and he's basically just speaking his mind. So the people who are still dependent on Donald Trump to get reelected next year are going to line up behind him because any okay. opportunity that they get to kind of speak against him could potentially sour how their electorate feels about them. Okay, Reggie, we got one minute. What's going on with impeachment proceedings against Trump? Well, that was brought to the fore last night by a Democratic congressperson who has done this a couple of times before. Uh, it actually made its way to the floor. It went to a vote. More Democrats decided not to go with it than go with it. But there is a growing number of Democrats who did vote for impeachment from no, uh, up to 90 from 80 last time. So this is a uh, uh, this is something that's actually starting to get a little bit of steam rolling into it uh, as the months and, and kind of uh, year heads in towards this election. So it's something to watch uh, this impeachment talk because it's uh, it's still a split Democratic Party right now but if nancy pelosi yeah. can keep it the way she wants it this impeachment won't happen anytime at least before the next election reggie thanks for coming on thank you reggie Cicchini, global news radio producer in washington dc with the latest on uh, out of the white house let's talk talk about uh protecting your kids especially when it comes to screen time i'm a dad i got two teenage boys at home and this is something that uh, my wife and i we talk about frequently about how much time are our kids spending on their phone, playing video games, on the computer? Of course, I think that's a concern for probably every parent. Check out this new study. This is a new Canadian study just out this week that measured uh, studied screen time and its effect on teenage kids. Now, they took a look at various types of screen time, including playing video games, watching TV, using a computer, and especially time spent on social media sites like Facebook and Instagram. The results of the study that by far the most damaging was social media. So time 
the teenagers spend on Facebook, Instagram, other social media sites. This study is linked, linking that to teenage depression and other problems. Much worse than video games, watching TV, or using a computer. Social media uh, seems to be the most dangerous uh, screen time identified in this particular study. What a great guest I got for you to talk about it, Dr. Jillian Roberts. She is a child psychologist, author, and speaker. She is the author of a brand new book, Kids, Sex, and Screens, Raising Strong, Resilient Children in the Sexualized Digital Age. I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the program. Dr. Roberts, welcome back. Thank you for having me on your program again. Thanks again for coming on. Like when you saw the results of this study, did any of that surprise you, the damage from social media or potentially, especially on teenage kids? Not at all. It, it reflects accurately what I see in my practice working with kids. Um, the, the changes that have happened in our world with now that we live in the digital age and things like social media are, are in our face absolutely all the time. It is having a, a, a devastating effect on our young people. How does it do that? Like, what what are the what are the damaging effects of social media that you see on the on the kids that you treat? Right. Well, I I see a variety of things um, more more so than than what the the study indicated. What the study indicated was that children tend to compare themselves to other kids. So when they're on a, a social media feed and they see other people, you know, living it up and having lots of friends and living their best life, they, they compare themselves and see their own life as being less than, and that triggers uh, depression in children. So I, I absolutely see that. Um, but what I also see is an increase in bullying online, um, having the online world be the, like the new playground <clears throat> where children are, are not going outside and running around and having fun but their, their, their online world becomes their, their total life. I see that. Um, and I see people, you know, young people going to extreme measures uh, to try to get more likes and more followers, which can, can lead to children crossing a line in terms of becoming more and more provocative online, um, which can lead to its own uh, ramifications and, you know, ripple effect of troubles for children. What kind of dangerous behaviors would you see in that regard? Like if a kid would wants to collect maybe more friends on a Facebook account or more likes on on a social media account, what kind of things are kids doing to do that? Well, I, I see, and I would say, you know, not just girls, but but mm-hmm. mostly I would say girls. But I, I do see this in, in 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 across, I guess, all that gender fluid span. Um, but kids trying to pose in more and more provocative and more and more sexy ways um, uh, and and just really pushing that to, to the edge and to the limit. Um, and then I see kids actually going across the lit, that, that line and across um, that boundary when, when they're privately direct messaging on social media. So someone would reach out to them um, by a message chat and ask for more photos and more things like that. And I see like an extreme amount of that happening in our young people now. My son told me a story recently about this, that he heard about at his school where someone he knew at school started receiving kind of romantic messages from a classmate on a social media account and it was fake it wasn't it was not he was not receiving overtures from from a girl that he thought was sending him romantic messages online it was someone who had created a fake account and was trying to trick him and embarrass people and it's, you know i think that's a terrible thing that kids kids can do i mean that's a form of online bullying isn't it do you ever hear of that kind of thing 
all the time, absolutely yeah. all the time. And I've I've had you know parents call me because their children are locked in bathrooms at a junior high um, because they sent a, a provocative photo to to a group of kids um, by accident, thinking that they were flirting, that they were you know um, you know beginning a relationship with someone when it was just all a great big joke and other kids yeah. laughing at their expense. So it, it it is extreme. And what what the study actually showed it was a, a great study. Uh, um, by uh, Dr. Pr- Patricia Conrad at um, uh, in Université de Montréal at the Hospital of Saint Justin, um, yes. but they also indicated that there was an increase in hospital visits because of suicidal behaviors and suicidal ideation. And I would say I absolutely see that when um, we have uh, children who are bullied to that extent. You know, for for someone who's just beginning to understand themselves and their body and all of those, you know, romantic feelings are just beginning to awaken inside of them. Um, to be humiliated like that can be, you know, extremely damaging for the psyche. Yeah, I can certainly, I can certainly see that for sure. My guest is Dr. Jillian Roberts. We're talking about a new study on social media use by teenagers and the damage that it can cause. One of the interesting things that jumped out at me in, in this study was it looked not only at social media use by teenagers on things like Facebook or Instagram, but also other forms of screen time, like playing video games. And I got I got two boys at home that like their video games like a lot of like a lot of boys do. And sometimes I worry about that or they spend too much time playing video games. You know, this study found that video gaming was less damaging to kids. It can be damaging in some cases, the study said but less damaging than social media use in terms of the damage right. caused by screen time. Does that ring true to you? Well, I, I was a bit surprised by that, to be honest. They they yep. actually found no correlation um, between um, video gaming and uh, the depressive symptoms that they were measuring. Um, so they, I mean, they were measuring a specific kind of outcome. Um, and what they believed was like a mediating factor uh, that was reducing the damage was that many multiplayer video games require co- cooperation. And you're actually online with other real human beings playing for some common goal. Um, so the the fact that you were online with other kids having fun and, and cooperating, um, that, that mediated the damage. What, yeah. what they really found the damage was, was when you're online by yourself, um, looking at other people having a good time. That's what was damaging. But if you were online with other people having a good time, um, that was at least less damaging. Okay, let's talk a little bit about how to protect our kids from, from these uh, these threats that are out there. And this is like the topic of your new book, Kids, yeah. Sex, and Screens. So when it comes to social media, if you got a teenage kid at home, should you be telling them don't use Instagram, don't use Facebook, or are there safe ways that they can use social media? Well, I believe there's safe ways, um, absolutely. And, and I would say, you know, what parents can do that would be the very best is at that first gifting of a device, create a family social media plan. And in Kids, Sex, and Screens, as well as my children's book uh, on the internet that was launched by our Canadian publisher, Orca Book Publishers, um, both of those books, I present a social media template for families. Um, So when you give that first device, talk about the parameters, talk about the boundaries, um, and uh, and that's part of the agreement that the the child um, uh, adheres to or agrees to when they receive that device. When we're, we're backtracking, it's more difficult. So when, when a child already has a device and has already be, been using a device, that can be more difficult. Um, but I think it's still possible. I think you can have a family meeting where you hit the reset button, you talk about 
what being a good digital citizen means, how you can use the device appropriately, and what kind of balance that you want to have um, in, in your life. I think that that, um, that can still be done. And really, it's about talking about boundaries and healthy boundaries. Um, boundaries in terms of how much time is spent, um, boundaries in terms of, you know, not liking or sharing something that's embarrassing to a, a classmate or a peer. Um, so different things that you can teach your child and still in them, you know, how to be a, a good a good person when perhaps nobody, you know, nobody is watching. Nobody knows that it was you that shared it. You know, it doesn't really matter. Um, you know, having good integrity means doing the right thing even when nobody is watching. Hey, my guest is Dr. Jillian Roberts. She's a child psychologist based in Victoria. Uh, her new book is Kids, Sex, and Screens, Raising Strong, Resilient Children in the Sexualized Digital Age. We're talking about kids and screen time, especially social media like Facebook, Instagram, uh, video gaming, excessive screen time, online bullying. you have any questions, concerns, comments about any of those topics, give me a call right now. 604-280-9898 is the number. 604-280-9898. Star 9898 on your cell. Let's go to Natalie in Pitt Meadows. Hi, Natalie. Hi, Mike. Um, Hi. Yeah, I overheard just the other day a conversation between these two uh, two women, and they mentioned they were, uh, I of course, I used Roft, <laughs> but they were going to university, and they were talking about how difficult it was to meet people and how sad it was, That and which is interesting, um, you know, the population at UBC, and they still felt disconnected. And in this digital age. So I, I just feel that we're just failing. Like we're putting too much, you know, we're blaming a device for problems, um, you know, with, with children connecting, whereas we should be putting more emphasis on putting less pressure and trying to fit in. You know, like uh, um, it's, it seems like we're still failing on that alone, which is strange. Like, you know, so, say someone, I mean, I grew up like that. If I didn't feel good about myself, I wouldn't go out, you know, and that was before Facebook and, and all this. Can you imagine what the kids are feeling like now with all this digital media aimed at them? Uh, that's why they're staying at home and maybe not connecting. So I think we could do far more to, you know, to, to lift uh, these uh, everyone's self-esteem and, and uh, issues uh, all okay. around that, for sure. Okay, Natalie, thank you for the call. Dr. Roberts, what do you think? I mean, could we do, be doing a better job of kids kind of, I, I guess, I don't know, interacting with each other more? Yes, ab absolutely. I, yeah. I, I couldn't agree with Natalie more. There, there is a disconnect now. And like in the, in the you know, years past, you would go to a dance and you'd walk across the room and ask someone to, to dance with you. And there was an element of risk with that. You know, there, you, you had to be confident. Um, it was a, you know, a rite of passage, um, but it also helped you connect with people in real time. When you're online and you're liking or, or, or not liking or sharing something that's embarrassing or, or not sharing anything at all, there's no risk in that. Like you, you can, you know, you can reject somebody or be mean or nasty um, or just completely disconnected um, without, without there being really any, any personal repercussions, um, which is different than I think when you're interacting with somebody in real life. So in Kids, Sex and Screens, I offer a seven-point parental compass 
happened on that compass, one of the um, points is nurturing relationships in real life. So mm-hmm. all of the things that parents can do, um, uh, whether it be sports or scouting or just whatever it could be as your child is growing up and learning about themselves and learning about the world, instilling in them the importance of, of getting out into fresh air, getting out into real life and connecting with real people in real ways. Right. I think the screen time issue and social media is it makes it I think it makes it tough for kids. I think, I think it's difficult for kids these days. In your practice over the years, do you, have you seen do you see more and more kids kind of showing up and presenting for you, uh, you know, damage from screen time and social media? Like what are the trend lines in this? Do you see it sort of getting worse? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, w- without question, which is, you know, for, for the first, you know, 12 or 13 years of my life, you know, I, you know, I was, you know, a busy professor at UVic. I still am a busy professor at UVic um, and was working uh, uh, quietly away in a private practice. But when I saw what was happening with our, our young people, I, I felt like I couldn't, I couldn't be quiet anymore. Um, I, had to, I had to get out there and, and start to talk and advocate for what we needed to do to keep kids safe. And that, that was really why I've, I've begun, you know, on participating in programs like this and writing the books that I've been writing, because we really do need to help parents and help kids make better choices. We've got a minute left, Jillian. Let's let's say a parent out there is really worried about maybe their child uh, being bullied online. What what kind of sort of immediate first steps would you recommend for someone who's looking for help? Well, I would say uh, number one um, is tell your child that you believe them, that they've yeah. done nothing wrong. Um, that you're there 100% for them, uh, that they don't have to handle the situation by themselves, that you'll walk that journey with them. Um, number one is the child needs to feel believed and, and not to feel alone. Um, that is critical. Second is try to figure out where the bullying is coming from. Um, if the bullying is coming from another child at school, then it's completely appropriate uh, to reach out to the administrator of that school and ask for help. If you believe that the bullying is coming from, uh, you know, some 40-year-old person uh, um, luring your child, uh, something like that, then it's completely appropriate to call the police and ask for some guidance from from police. Um, I would also say that if, if anybody is in a situation and they don't know how to respond or, or navigate a challenge, um, I would be happy to be of help. And I can be reached at hello at familysparks.com. Um, and I've got myself as well as other therapists there that can take a look at an individual situation and provide what what guidance we can. Thanks for coming on today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on your program again. Yeah, my pleasure too. Thank you. That's Dr. Jillian Roberts. She's a child psychologist based in Victoria. Her new book is Kids, Sex, and Screens.